Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. I've been preaching a series of sermons on some high points or selected passages in the book of Isaiah. Today is the passage about what's called the suffering servant. Isaiah, chapter 52, you'll find this on page 1045 of your pew Bible. I want to start in verse 13 of chapter 52. Also, I'm going to read predominantly from the New King James translation, but actually I'm going to alter a few words here because I think it'd be more fitting to the Hebrew and to the context. Let me read, starting in verse 13, all the way to the end of chapter 53. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or splendor, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was put upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers, he was silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray. Lord, we pray you'll strengthen us with your word and with this passage of scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week I mentioned that God often predicts future events in the Bible. And then later in the Bible, God shows how he brought fulfillment to those events in history. Well, There's one main event or one main prediction that God made throughout the entire Old Testament. And that prediction is this, that one day a heroic Savior would come into the world. The first time God made this prediction about a heroic Savior coming into the world is that when he told the woman in Genesis chapter 3 that the Savior would crush the head of the serpent. Now, What happens in the Bible, the Bible sometimes functions like a funnel. A funnel brings a big topic and narrows it down, or a a funnel brings oil, a big lump of oil, and narrows it down so you can pour it into something small. Well, that's kind of like what happens in the Bible. There's a big, massive prediction about a massive Savior, a big theme, but then this passage of Scripture funnels it down to something called, or someone called, the suffering servant. Here in the book of Isaiah, this is where God starts to funnel it down. There's an adjustment made to this prediction or an update to the expectation of what this Savior, this heroic Savior is going to do. The update is rather unexpected. And to some degree, it's offensive. The update that's unexpected is that the hero The heroic Savior actually is going to suffer. He's going to be scapegoated. He's going to be blamed. He's going to be killed. And he's going to be killed and blamed for what others have done. And all of their guilt and all their problems are going to be put on him. That's what's unexpected. Also, this is rather offensive. Because in reality, God is saying, you are the guilty one. And there's nothing you can do to get rid of your own guilt. In fact, God has to do all this for you. God is the one who has to take away your guilt and put it on someone who is actually innocent. That's rather offensive to a person's pride. They can't save themselves. Well, this long passage of Scripture that I read to you basically has three parts I want to break down for you. That is the servant's success his sufferings, and his salvation. His success is mentioned in chapter 52, verse 13 and following. And that's why I mentioned the word in verse 13. God says this, Behold, my servant shall prosper. Also look at verse 15. He shall sprinkle many nations. This is an allusion to baptism. Kings will shut their mouths at him. This is what's going to happen at the end. And for what had been told to them, they will see. This is talking about conversion, bringing in the kings to the Lord. And what they've not heard, they will consider. 
Notice that this entire section about the suffering servant begins with his ultimate success. I find this rather encouraging. Think about this. If you knew you were going to go through some sufferings, if you knew you were going to go through some hard times, but someone said, or the Lord said, don't worry, I promise you, you're going to make it. You're going to get through it. This is basically what's happening here. Before we get to the sufferings, before we get to the hardships of what he is going to go through, God says, this servant of mine, he will prosper. All the sufferings he goes through will be vindicated. All the work that he has before him, he is going to work out for the end for which he purposed. This does remind me, by the way, of Jesus' baptism. Before Jesus goes through his sufferings on the cross, before he goes through all that, early in Jesus' ministry, the voice comes from heaven at Jesus' baptism, and God the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's not like God had to wait for Jesus to earn that pleasure. It's not like, like God had to wait until he goes through all these sufferings and say, okay, I'm, I'm pleased with you now. No, before all that, God the Father looks down at Jesus, God the Son, and said, this is my son. I am well pleased with him. In other words, I know he has what it takes to prosper. I know he has what it takes to go on the road before him and to accomplish this heroic salvation. Just think about the affirmation that Jesus receives from his father when he hears that. The affirmation that he knows, the father knows his son has what it takes and he can persevere through any trial. This is a good model to follow as a father, giving such affirmation to children, knowing that whatever comes in the future Son, you can make it. Daughter, you can get through it. You can carry whatever cross God gives upon your, your little shoulders. So in this passage of Scripture, we see the success, first of all, of the suffering servant. Secondly, let's look at his sufferings. There's four aspects of his sufferings I want to briefly boil down for you. The first thing he's going to suffer is rejection. Notice in chapter 53, it begins with this, these two questions. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In the Gospel of John, he will quote this passage in chapter 12, verse 37, because it says that Jesus was rejected. He did all these miracles and people did not believe him in chapter 12 of John, verse 37. And John says, the word of Isaiah was fulfilled in this. Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The point is, no matter what Jesus did, they don't believe what Jesus is doing. They don't believe the report that he is giving. He is going to be rejected. And notice the description of his rejection. In verse 2, later in verse 2, it says he had no form or splendor. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul talks about the wisdom of God. And basically, the wisdom of God is hidden 
in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, it's hidden so much so that none of the rulers of this age knew about it. If they had known about the wisdom of God hidden in Christ Jesus, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Makes you think about what Jesus looked like whenever he walked around and preaching in his earthly ministry. You probably would look at him and think, oh, forget him. He doesn't look good. He doesn't look charismatic. There's probably nothing visible about the Lord in his face and his description. He probably was not a very attractive person there in his earthly ministry, physically speaking. But people were attracted to his message. People were attracted to his compassion, his backbone of standing against the Pharisees. They saw his miracles. But even in the face of all that, he came to his own, John said, and they still rejected him. When you think about this, by the way, the topic of rejection, rejection is one of the hardest things that you can experience in life. Let me put it this way. It's the hardest thing that you will. (laughs) One of the hardest things that you will experience in life. Your desire for a relationship may be rejected by another person. Your work that you do for someone may be rejected by another person or a business or a boss. But I want you to think about this, fellow Christian. You're a follower of Christ. You're a follower of Christ. And whenever you experience rejection, like Christ experienced rejection, experienced rejection, then move forward. Move forward, pick up the cross, and seek to please God and not others. And that's what Jesus Christ did Whenever he experienced rejection, he went straight to the cross, right where the Father wanted him to go. Now, why did he go to the cross? Well, that leads us to the second aspect of his suffering. And that was the the work of being scapegoated. He will experience the function of being scapegoated. Now, what does that mean, scapegoated? That comes from the book of Leviticus, where the priest would take the sin symbolically take the sins of the people and lay the, hand, the sins on the goat in the temple, in the, in the tabernacle, and then send it off away out. And that's where the term scapegoat comes from. It's a shifting of taking the guilt, taking the sin from someone that, that committed the crime, committed the sin, and then put it in, on an innocent animal and take that animal and send him out there into the wilderness. That's Old Testament theology, symbolism, looking forward to what Christ would actually do. And this is what happens here in verse 4. Notice the scapegoat language here. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our, for our peace came upon him By his stripes, now those stripes are the beating stripes, the wounds, all the afflictions he suffered. By those stripes of his, we are healed. Notice who is the active person doing all this. It's not that the Romans are doing this or the the wicked people are doing this or the devil's doing this. God is doing this. God is the one striking this suffering servant. God is the one afflicting this suffering servant 
as the scapegoat. He, we consider him stricken by God. This is going to come later in the passage as well. So secondly, he's rejected. He's scapegoated. Now, I have a question for you. If you knew you were going to be scapegoated, what would you do? You would run. You would get away from it. You would say, not me. Don't blame me. Get me out of here. I don't want to suffer for someone's sins. None of us would want to do that. But Jesus is quite different. In verse 7, this shows his willingness to suffer. Let me show you this. Verse 7 says he was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth meaning he didn't even try to defend himself. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. This is demonstrating his willingness. Willingness to go to the cross and basically say, Father, blame me for my my church's sin. Blame me, strike me, smite me, bring your wrath upon me. Let it happen. That's how much Jesus Christ loved you. To actually lay down his life for you willingly, not even defend himself in the middle of the scapegoating event on the cross. Fourthly, we see this. How far does his sufferings go? All the way to the death. This is why Paul would say in the book of Philippians chapter 2 that... He went to death, even the death of the cross. That's why in verse 8 it says he was taken from, from the prison and judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. That means he's going to be put to death. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And you look at verse 10 again, very important verse. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Another word for that is crush. The Lord is, again, the active party here. All the Romans and all the things that going happening during the crucifixion was under the providence of God. God's basically using them like pawns to do what He wants to do to conquer sin, to destroy the devil. And God is the one putting His own Son to death in grief to make Him a sin offering. This is how the expectation expectation of a hero turns upside down. When I say the word hero, that's another word for savior. You think about David cutting off Goliath's head. You think about Samson and you think about might and strong strength. You think about a winning the victory and a clear way of destroying evil. The way Jesus destroys evil is self-sacrifice. The way Jesus destroys evil and conquers the world and conquers your sin is he takes it upon himself. That's why the Bible turns this definition of hero upside down and says, now look at Jesus. See how he has won the victory and fulfilled the promises of God. So briefly, what you have in this suffering servant passage, his sufferings are about rejection, scapegoating, his willingness to suffer, and ultimately his death. Lastly, in this passage, we see the certainty of his salvation. It says this at the end of verse 10. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Let me explain to you what that means. When you go out there and sweat in the day and you work and you toil throughout the day. Imagine you plant and you do all this and you sweat and there's all this labor you give. 
but there's no payment. There's no fruit. There's no nothing. That means you don't see the labor of your soul. Meaning this, if you actually earn something from your labor, if you see the fruit that comes from your planting and all that, then you see the labor of your soul. You see how fruitful it was. You see how prosperous it was. And you're satisfied. That's what verse 11 is saying. Jesus is going to see the fruit. Jesus is going to see the prosperity of his salvation spread throughout the nations as a certainty of his salvation. That's why it says, by his knowledge, by by you coming to know him, my righteous servant will justify many, for he bore their iniquities. One thing you learn about this, in summary, three things. Nothing can stop. Nothing can ultimately stop the spread of Jesus' salvation. That's what this is explaining. It's not that God was gambling and, you know, blowing on the dice and hoping that something good is going to come as a result of the suffering servant. It's not a gamble. It's a certainty. He knows that once my son lays down his life, there's going to be millions and millions. There's going to be many people coming to Christ because my son will not die in vain, is what God the Father is essentially saying. There's, you cannot ultimately stop the spread of Jesus' salvation. As a little side note, I, I'm sure all of y'all appreciate capitalism. You appreciate prosperity that we have in, the, in America But even in communism, even in totalitarian regimes like in China and other places of the world, the gospel can still grow the church. It's a luxury to have the blessings we have in America, but the gospel and the truth of Christ does not need to have a perfect government to succeed. It doesn't need to have freedom of speech to succeed. What it needs to have is a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit goes in every corner of the world and brings the gospel to people. And Jesus' salvation will continue to spread throughout the world. No matter what government is in charge, no matter what political leader is in charge, that's how the church grows. And that's how powerful God is. It reminds me of another passage of scripture, which I might preach on next week. And that is Isaiah 55 verse, verse 10. God says this, my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. It will accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus is the word of God incarnate. Now we had the word inscribed and now it goes throughout the world. So number one, you cannot ultimately stop the spread of Jesus' salvation. No man can. Number two, Let me apply it this way to you. Your faith in Christ was part of God's success plan. You have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have repentance in Him. When you had that faith and demonstrate that faith, that's evidence right there that you have been part of God's success plan. You have been part of the plan that does. This is one of the ones that God justifies. You were part of the plan from long ago. You're part of one of those domino effects, I guess you can say, of all the the stream of faith going into the nations and bringing in more and more people into the church. 
So when you, when you realize this, it helps you appreciate the fact that I love God because he first loved me. Your love toward God is really a response to his initiation. It's a response to his love. It's a response to what he has done. That's what faith is. Faith responds to what God says, what God reveals in his word. And it's a, a response of gratitude, of delight and love. Secondly, this also all teaches you that salvation is what God does for you. Salvation is what God does for you on, on behalf of you through his suffering servant. Salvation is never about what you do, do for yourself or how you can save yourself. This is why as Christians, we come here on Sunday and we say, Lord, you saved me. Lord, you're my savior. And Lord Jesus, thank you for being the suffering servant. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We give you thanks, Lord, for the purity of your gospel and the beauty of your word. We give you thanks, Lord, that all your predictions that you made in Scripture concerning your suffering servant have come true, and you apply it even to the world today by the power of your Holy Spirit that you may grow your kingdom and your church. It's in Christ Jesus' name we give you thanks and praise. Amen.